Thank you, Jasmine. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, um, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for your word that is good and beautiful and true. And we thank you for, as Hayden read, the, the psalmist's desire to know your ways and to not only know them, but to follow them. And that as we follow them, as we trust in you, that our, our vision may be, as we just sang, of that future where our face is transfixed on you and the hope that we have because of that. Would you take just a moment to ask uh, the Lord to speak to you from his word this morning? Lord, thanks for your faithfulness to speak. May we hear from you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is uh, good to be together this morning and uh, great to worship the Lord with, with one another. Uh, I wanted to let you know about a couple things coming up. This is uh, this week on Wednesday is the beginning of the season of Lent, which is the season that we uh, celebrate as a church. It's a season of repentance and reverence. And um, on uh, Wednesday, which is Ash Wednesday, we will have a uh, Ash Wednesday service at noon here and would love to encourage you to come. There's uh, info in the bulletin about that. Uh, just a reflective service, a very short service. And then there's a, um, a light lunch afterwards as well. There's info there. Uh, as well as in the season of Lent, uh, one of the things that we do is we have a devotional uh, that is that you can receive by text or email. And again, there's details in there that will start on Wednesday as we kind of walk through this season of, of really preparing uh, our hearts uh, through, through the cross into Easter as we look forward to that, to that celebration in 40 days. I um, also want to ask for your prayers. Um, later this afternoon, um, Stephen Sanders, Michelle Kappas, and myself will be leaving uh, to go to Costa Rica for a week to continue our partnership uh, that we've had now for a number of years where we will be training leaders and pastors. And we'll be going and training pastors on the doctrine of God, which is a part of this uh, module that we are uh, walking through with them for a number of years. Uh, and we'd love your prayers for that. And specifically, Specifically, we love your prayers. This group of pastors, uh, um, they've become friends. We've, we know them really well over the years. And, and one who we knew pretty well, um, very well, um, uh, became sick in December and actually in a matter of three weeks passed away. And so um, we are grieving. They obviously are grieving. So we're going into a community where there's a lot of hurt and grief and pain. And so we both want to teach the doctrine of God, but also want just to care well for this um, group of, of pastors and leaders as we're there. So we'd love your prayers for us this week as we go about that. Um, pretty much every story, um, pretty much every book you read, every movie you watch, every show you watch, it tends to have an arc to it. It tends to have an arc that, that leads you to a place where as you're watching it or as you're reading it or as you're engaging the story where, where it begins to feel kind of hopeless. We kind of go, how will this work out? How will this problem be solved? Or how will this, this evil be eradicated? Or whatever it is as we're in this story. And, and there's, an, there's a, a singer-songwriter from years ago that I've always appreciated. And he, he wrote a song kind of about that idea of how do we see life through the context of a bigger story. And the song is called Show the Way. And he says, these are the lyrics of the song. He says, you say you see no hope. You say you see no reason we should dream that the world would ever change. You're saying love is foolish to believe because there'll always be some crazy with an army or a knife 
to wake you from your daydream and put the fear back in your life. He says, if someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? He's almost in defeat. It's looking like the evil side will win. So on the edge of every seat, from the moment that the whole thing begins, he says, this is the chorus, love, it is love that mixed the mortar. It's love who stacked these stones. It's love who made this stage here, though it looks like we're alone. In this scene, set in shadows, like the night is here to stay, there's evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote this play. For in this darkness, love can show the way. He says, so now the stage is set. Now, why do I read that? As we think about this story of which we find ourselves in, that at times it it kind of feels like the night is here to stay. Or, or like the stage is set in darkness. Like the hero, it, it, it's too late or maybe not coming at all. And yet, because he's writing this and he is a Christian writer, he's saying that the stage is set. Because it's God who, who mixed the mortar. It's God who set up the stage. It is God who has written this story. And it is God who will fulfill the story and finish the story, even though it feels like we're in this moment of darkness. Now, for some of us, this may hit a little too close to home. Personally, we're walking through something that just feels like darkness, like the stage is set in shadows. Maybe it's a, a crisis that you're walking through and in, in the midst of this crisis, you're trying to figure out how, how do I even understand what's up and down? Or maybe it's just, just, you know, a thousand pricks that's just coming at you all the time that just feels like the stage is set in shadows, like darkness is here to stay. Uh, you know, it, this question that comes up in that is, is God faithful? Is, is God even writing this story? Is there something bigger going on? For others of us, we may not be maybe in the midst of that personally, but we see what's happening around us. We turn the news on. I mean, you watch 15 minutes of panic news and you're kind of like, oh, wow, this is all I need to panic about. I mean, first 15 minutes and you're just like, it's darkness around us. And the temptation is to kind of go, is this just all there is? Is it just going to be dark? Is the, sta- is the stage just going to be set in shadows? Or maybe for some of us, as we've been walking through the book of Romans now for a number of months and, and 10 chapters about God's gracious and glorious salvation and our response to his salvation, which is to, to believe and receive, to trust in him. And especially over the last couple of weeks, maybe what we've been struggling with is our family members or our friends who don't believe who've rejected Jesus. And it, the picture seems kind of bleak. We're not sure. Will they, will they really ever trust God? I mean, we've, we've talked about it, we've shared it, and, and some, of us, there's some of them are so close that we're up all night thinking about this, praying for these people, and we're wondering, is, is God writing a bigger story? Is there a stage? Is the stage set? And this question is the question that Paul anticipates after 10 chapters of Romans. It's the question that Paul anticipates that the people will ask, is God faithful when it feels like everything is bleak? 
And here's the, the reality. He's going to ask this question specifically about the Jewish people. Now, the readers of Romans at the time would have been Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, as well as Jewish Christians. And as they're reading this, the Jewish Christians, when they're reading this, are saying, look, my people, the Jewish people at that time, they would say, have rejected Jesus in mass amounts. It's very few people at the time who have trusted in Jesus who were Jewish. And so the question is, is God still faithful to the story he's been writing, to this covenant people of God? Has God rejected Israel? And for some of us, we're kind of like, okay, that sounds like an interesting topic. Um, We'll look at Romans 11 about that topic, but what does that have to do with me? Most of us are not Jewish. But what we need to see is that God is faithful to his people. God is faithful to his redemptive plan, his redemptive purposes in his history, so that we can truly trust that he is faithful to you and me when the stage is set in shadows. When it feels bleak, when it feels like it's darkness all around us, that God is faithful. Not only is he faithful to his whole redemptive plan, but he's faithful to you and me. So let's look at this. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 11, uh, I'd love for you to turn there as we walk through this. And it's this question that he asks, uh, starting in verse one. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Now the rest of chapter 11, the last couple of verses, is basically a long answer to this question. But we need to know what the question is. And as we saw in the reading, he says, by no means. For Paul says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, God obviously has not left all Israelites out because I'm an Israelite and I have faith in Jesus and am following him. And then he goes on. He says this very clear statement, verse two. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now we spent a lot of time in chapter nine, just a couple of weeks ago, talking about God's divine election. And that all of salvation depends upon God. And God will not reject his people. He will be faithful to the end. But he goes on to describe this. Do you you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So here's what's happening. And I want us to see this, that God is faithful even when it seems really bleak. Because here's Elijah. Elijah is, and if you remember this, this is a really dark moment in Elijah's life. Elijah is like, I am alone among all the people who is faithful to God. And God's answer to him is actually, even though it looks really bleak, you are not alone. There's actually 7,000 people that you don't even know about that are faithful to God. There's a remnant. There's, God is faithful to keep a remnant. And he says, even now, Paul says, there's a remnant of people who trust the Lord. There's a remnant. So like Elijah, the, the, the readers, the, the Jewish readers at the time of Romans, they probably felt alone. They probably read this and as they sat among their Gentile Christians and as a Jewish Christian, they're like, we feel really alone. There's just not many of us. There's not many of us who have trusted in Jesus. In fact, mass amounts of our family and our friends and all the people we know have rejected Jesus. And and Paul says here, no, you're not alone. There's a remnant. There's a people. So it may be small, but it's a remnant. 
And even now, if we just look at our current time right now, as we think about the 15 million Jewish people who live on our planet right now, there's, the statistics are all over the place, so it's a little tricky to, to find. But even recent research has found that ethnic Jewish people are some of the least religious people on the planet of any religion. Uh, and the numbers, again, it's hard to determine, but out of the 15 million Jews right now, what, we, what most think on the high end is that it is significantly less than 1% Christian of the 15 million Jews living on the planet right now. So the question is, is has God abandoned his covenant people? And the answer is no. There's always a remnant. Even if it's small, God is faithful even when it looks bleak. And what we see currently does not determine his faithfulness. Now, Paul goes on to explain this further. And he says, actually, what seems really bleak to the Jewish people at that time is actually a fulfillment of God's purposes and his promises. Jump down to verse 11 with me. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, here's the second thing I want us to see from this passage. That not only is God faithful in the midst of when it seems really bleak, but God is faithful to his purposes and his promises that are way bigger than us. His ways are not our ways. And so I want to quickly just walk through this because I want us to see this big picture. And again, in understanding this whole redemptive picture, we see his faithfulness to us now. And so uh, I'm going to turn there. You don't have to. Genesis 12, all the way back to the beginning, when God calls his people Israel. Genesis 12, this is God speaking to Abraham. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, all the way back to the beginning of Genesis 12, God's purpose was that the Gentiles would be blessed. They would receive the glory of God, the presence of God. They would know who God is through the Israelite people of God. The Jewish people were blessed to be a blessing. That was the purpose from minute one. And yet, if you just read the Old Testament through the lens of this promise and just keep reading and reading and reading, it's a sad story of the people of God over and over again. They're trying to worship God and yet they reject him. They're trying to worship God. They fall into idolatry. They're trying to worship God and yet these other nations come and and actually oppress them. And if you were going to look at this, you were like, this isn't really happening. The people out, the families of the earth, the nations, they're not really coming to faith in God through the Israelite people. It just seems to not be happening. In fact, the only times that the other nations come to faith in God oftentimes is in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. And so God does something. So again, if this was the purpose, century after century, this just does not seem to be happening. But in fact, what is God doing? Paul's trying to show this. That God is going to enter on the scene a Jewish Messiah. And through this Jewish Messiah, all peoples, all Gentiles, people who are not Jews, will be blessed. They will, this promise will come into the fruition of Gentiles coming to faith in God through Jesus. And so that's what he's saying here. And so the Jewish rejection of the Messiah is 
actually leading to Gentiles coming to faith. And so nations and families and peoples now know about Jesus because the people of God rejected the Messiah. Okay, so you follow me with this? So what seemed impossible through a historical read of the Old Testament, what seemed impossible, that Gentiles would actually come to faith in God? That seems impossible. God has done it through Jesus and also through the rejection of, the, the, of Israel, of God. Now, Paul uses an illustration uh, of an olive tree. And like I said, this is a long answer, so fall, stay with me. Uh, verse 17, uh, end of verse 16, he says, And if the root is holy, so are the branches. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Now, this may surprise you, but I'm not a botanist. I'm not even a gardener, okay? So I'm going to take my uh, attempt at trying to explain this illustration. But here's what, here's what the illustration is. There's these olive trees in Israel that were cultivated and taken good care of by gardeners. And they would cut them, cut them down and prune them in, in order so that they would continue to grow. And, but if you went out into the hills, you'd find olive, just wild olive trees, right? And, they're just, and so, some of them were bearing fruit, some of them weren't. And what he's saying is if you cut off a branch from one of these wild olive trees, and you, apparently you can cut it into a V and you can graft it in into the original cultivated plant, that it will actually continue to bear fruit. And so the illustration is, is that God is the root, Israel is the cultivated plant, and Gentiles, we, are the wild branch that has now been cultivated into the promises of God, and we've been invited into a relationship with God, the root. Now, just in case that we Gentiles get a little cocky about that and prideful and go, oh, look at the, you know, the Jewish branch over here that's on the ground. He says this, verse 18. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. Now, again, this gets kind of confusing with this metaphor, but follow me. Here's the point. We as Gentiles, non-Jewish people, have been grafted into the promises of God. It has always been God's plan to let the nations be blessed by God through the people Israel. And so he does not say this as if we who are saved by God, if you're reading this, like uh, can lose our salvation or be cut off. That goes against everything he's been saying for chapters 9 through 11 and twice in chapter 11. But he's using a metaphor. And in the metaphor, the wild fruitful branch could look down upon the cut off branch that does not have faith and say, look at me. I'm on this. I have all this fruit coming off of me. He says that would be ridiculous because the only reason we have life is because God grafted us into the family. Another illustration that probably makes more sense to us is thinking about the idea of adoption. That we are adopted children of God is in this metaphor. We have all the blessings of a biological child. 
Our status is completely secure, but we've been adopted. But God has not forgotten the biological children. So here's what I want us to see about this whole big picture. All throughout Old Testament history, you read it and you go, there's no way Gentiles are going are to believe in God and receive the blessings of God. And yet in redemptive history through Jesus, they do. Because the people of God reject Jesus, now salvation goes out. That's God's purposes through it to the Gentiles. In nation after nation, Gentiles are understanding and trusting in Jesus. And now we say, boy, it sure does look bleak for the Jewish people. Sure does look bleak for, for the God's covenant people. Well, less than 1% of the 15 million people are, are believers. It sure does seem like darkness is all around us. Is God even writing a story still for the people of God? God says, yes, I'm writing this story. My redemptive plans and purposes for Israel are not done. And so follow this purpose. Jump back with me. Romans 11. Uh, again, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I've magnified my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, the Gentiles, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And so here's what Paul's saying. This thing that seems impossible, God's blessing going to the Gentiles, God has done it through Jesus and specifically through the rejection of the Jews. He uses all things to accomplish his purposes. And now the faith of the Gentiles can actually make the Jews jealous. That's the idea that he speaks of here. That Jews would come to faith in Jesus because the Gentiles' faith. So in the metaphor, the cutoff branch looks up at the the fruitful branches says, man, I, I wish I had that fruit. I want to bear fruit like that. Or, or the other metaphor, a biological child who, who's rejected his parents looks at the adopted child in the relationship with the family and says, I want to be a part of the family. I, I wish I was still part of the family. And, and there's this kind of jealousy in the best way possible to say, I want what they have. And so here's this picture. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews leads to a widespread faith of the Gentiles, which is where we are. And this widespread faith of the Gentiles, what he's saying, will lead to a future widespread faith of the Jews. Now, just an aside of this, what a thought that our faith, that our devotion to God, that our understanding of what Jesus has done for us might make those who do not believe in Jesus jealous? That they would say, I see the spiritual fruit and I see the fruit and the blessings that God has laid upon you and I want that. In this context, it's Jewish people who would see that. But the thought of, of our devotion leading to mission, that is a beautiful thought. And an opportunity, I think, for those who don't know him to see the goodness of God in us. And Paul says, if the Jewish rejection led to the salvation of the Gentiles, the nations, how much more does a widespread Jewish belief in the Messiah lead to? Now, we just covered 
all of redemptive history, okay? So you, you stayed with me. Good job. Um, but God's writing that story. The story is about God's faithfulness. God's faithful, even when it looks bleak. God's faithful to his purposes and his plans, even through a bizarre way that we probably never would have thought of. It's his ways, not our ways. But lastly, God is faithful to the end. Now, there's lots of views on this, and so there's lots of views probably within our church, but let me just read what it says. 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So again, we don't know exactly what this means, but here's the way I understand this. That at some point in the end times, as he's, I believe, talking about here, there will be widespread faith among the Jewish people. Now, when Jesus was talking about the end times, he says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So if we put those two things together, that the gospel proclaimed to every nation, every people group, every family, every people group on the, on the face of the earth, we ought to have a desire for the gospel to go everywhere to every people group on the face of the earth, because he says, then the end will come. And then after the fullness of the Gentiles, this phrase that he says, there will be a time of revival among Jewish people where we will see this small remnant turned into a radical move of God. And this is a part of redemptive history that has not happened yet. A promise that we wait for to see the people of God, the covenant people of God, ethnic Jews, come to faith in Christ. The very thing that we would say, that's impossible. That's just so unlikely. That will never happen. God says he always has a remnant. He's faithful to his purposes and to his plan. And he's faithful to the end of the story. That in some form or fashion, Jewish Christians, Jewish people will become Christians and come to faith in Christ. And they will experience the radical grace and the mercy of God. Unless we get confused, look what he says again, just as we close with this in verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on us all. There's two things I want us to notice here. One, Jew or Gentile, every single one of us has a desperate need for a savior. We are broken, we are sinful, we're disobedient. We need God's mercy. And that's what God has provided at the cross through Jesus. So the faith comes through Jesus and what he has done for us. And the second thing is that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That God will not reject those whom he foreknew. Nothing can thwart God's plan or his purpose. He will be faithful to the end. I love that Paul says, don't be unaware of the mystery. Don't be unaware of the whole story. Why? Because when we recognize that God is faithful to the whole story, to his redemptive plans and purposes, that his ways are not our ways, we trust that he's faithful to us right now. He's faithful to the end for all of his purposes and promises. Therefore, he's faithful to us when it feels like 
darkness is all around us, when it feels like the stage is set in shadows, when it feels like it's going to be death by a thousand pricks, he is faithful. He will be faithful to the end. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, uh, we thank you for this passage that we don't fully understand. But what we do understand is that you are the author and you are the finisher of this story. And so, Lord, we trust. We trust in the meantime that what you have done for us accomplished salvation for us once and for all. And that, Lord Jesus, you will return to fulfill all of your promises and all of your purposes for your glory and so that we might see your faithfulness to the end. And so Lord, my prayer for us today is that we would trust in a faithful God. That we would recognize as we're here this morning that what we see around us, what we see in current times, is, does not determine your faithfulness. That which is impossible is not impossible to you. And so we pray that we might see you as the author and the finisher of our faith. And that as we partake in communion, that we might recognize where we are in the story. We've been redeemed. We're disobedient. We did not deserve it. And yet you and your great mercy have given us everything through Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. And yet we still wait for your return to make all things new, to fulfill all of your promises. And we trust that just as you were faithful to send your son Jesus to die for us, that you will be faithful to finish what you started. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.